welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week, we have something a little different for you. We are going to be discussing Cassandra Austin. So a few weeks ago, we were invited to Jane Austen House Museum by Penguin Random House, which is not a house, it's a publisher, just in case, you know, there's house Mm. in both of those titles, don't want to confuse anyone, Uh, to record a discussion between the author, Jill Hornby, and the collections and interpretations manager, Sophie Reynolds, about Cassandra. Unfortunately, it did conflict with mine and Lauren's recording trip to the Lake District so we couldn't go but we were able to send your questions ahead about Cassandra to Sophie and Jill and they had a great discussion about it. Now Jill is the author of Miss Austen which is um, about Cassandra Austen later on in her life and that is published by Penguin Random House of course and it will be out in January of 2020. It is a great book and I think you guys will really love it. Um, We're going to go ahead and join this conversation already in progress. Jill is just giving everyone the lowdown on Cassie. And I also want to just give you guys a warning that there is a tiny bit of electrical interference with the recording. So, yeah. Well, we know that she was the fifth child of um, George and Cassandra Austin. She was named after her mother. Um, She was three years old when Jane was born and adored her from the minute she saw her because they were a sea of boys. There were six boys and two girls and so they would naturally stick together and um, found one another and it must have been a great relief for Cassie when when Jane came along. Um, We know that she was a traditional eldest daughter in that she was the more responsible, she was the more sort of, her mother relied on her more, she was the apple of her mother's eye. She was very capable, very competent, intelligent, handsome girl. And um, Jane was a bit more, slightly more problematic, slightly more um, mischievous and uh, less controllable possibly than Cassie was. We know that she made a perfect match when she was 21 because um, she became engaged to Tom Fowle who was the second son of her father's great friend, Thomas Fowle. And the whole fam- both families were huge friends. The four Fowle boys had all gone to the Austin to rectory to be educated. They'd all grown up with the Austin children. They were all one big happy family. Tom and Cassie formed an attachment. They became engaged. Jubilation was universal. Unfortunately, Tom was the second son. He, um, they would have to wait a very long time because he was set to just be a curate for years and he was on 250 pounds a year, that dreaded sum that rather haunts the novels. Um, and then he took matters into his own hands and decided to go to the East Indies to sort of basically make a quick buck. Tragically, he never came back. Um, so Cassandra was became a widow before she was even married. That was a part of the novel that I really responded to. I found that bit very moving. How is that 
was there any material to build that part of the novel on or did that have to come from your imagination? There were really the bare bones because I think it was such a painful episode in both families' lives that um, almost nothing is, is left to, to um, examine, you know, but the facts are there. We know that Tom's mother died shortly afterwards, more or less of a broken heart, you know, she sort of took to her bed. Um, after that and the, I think there's a letter from a cousin saying you know about the shocking news at Steventon that they've all been plunged into mourning it was a terrible blow because finding fiancés wasn't terribly easy as we know from the novels finding two pretty impossible also there was this sort of double yoke for Cassandra because Tom was making a thousand pounds out of this trip with Lord Craven. He left that thousand pounds to Cassandra. And I think she must have felt very beholden by that because she was profiting from his death. Mm. I can see that the sort of woman that she was would feel that that made her um, his, his widow yeah. rather than. Rather than a girl who needed to go off and find another chance. It was very sad, it was a very dark period. Looking back on it though, it was a hugely important period for Jane because if Cassie had married, she would have gone off Shropshire at worst, Berkshire at best. They would have had a small house, they wouldn't have been able to take Jane in. Jane didn't have the purchase with her other brothers that Cassie did um, with them. I don't think Edward's sister would have taken Jane in to look after her children because I think she'd have been a bit useless at it. Mm. Jane would have had to have married the, married the first useless bloke that came along, you know, um, for no, probably for no love and no money. But together, there was safety in numbers and they could get through. And Cassandra rather switched her attention from, from romance and her own future to her own family, and in particular Jane, their bond became closer and closer, and her life became dedicated to her nieces and nephews, her brothers, her mother, her father, while he still lived. And Jane was the beneficiary of that. It meant that Jane was able to live as a single woman, and therefore Jane was able to write novels. It's a really interesting side of the story, isn't it? I think it's something that... Um, today we find really hard to appreciate just how difficult being a novelist, a, a late a female novelist without much money of your own was, how that wasn't socially acceptable, how you weren't able to just go off and live by yourself and do your own thing. Society didn't accept that. So actually it's such an interesting way of looking at it that Cassandra in essence sacrificed her own life and possibly her own marital happiness. To, to her sister. That's how I see it. That's what hindsight gives us, I think. I think it was it was a matter of chance for Jane as a writer because she would, would certainly have had to have got married and un, unless you were in the highest echelons of society to um, write when you were a married woman. So you're a clergyman's wife, you're pregnant with your eighth, eighth child, you're growing the vegetables, you're doing the Monday wash, you're running the house, da, 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 you're in church and the... You don't write a letter, you know, you don't write a recipe. You certainly don't sit down and write the old masterpiece. It wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. It simply wouldn't have happened. 
and that's something that you touch on in the novel as well. And I know this is we're veering away from Cassandra, but this is yes. in Jane in Jane's life. I know one of the the episodes that people are most fascinated with is this idea of the twenty four hours, the twelve hours that so she's been proposed to in the evening, and then in the next morning yeah. she retracts her acceptance. And there's so much speculation about what happened in that night. And obviously Cassandra was the one that was there with her. Yes, as as she always was, you know. Um, when Cassandra died, the secrets died. Uh, yes, I can see that it would have been tempting to marry Mr. Harris Big Wither, who we have nothing to recommend him apart from his money. But um, yes, part of it would have died, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, and on a very practical level, yeah. there simply wouldn't. You're right. There yeah. simply wouldn't have been time. No. Um, if we if we start to get onto the letters, then and. Um, one of the, there are all these different reasons, aren't there, about why Cassandra decided that some of the letters had to go. Um, one of the reasons that um, some of their descendants, some of their nieces and nephews, later generations, said that they want that they wanted letters to be destroyed or not to be made public, was to do with those incidents. Mm. like the Harris Big Wither episode, they didn't want things like that to come out. No. They wanted Aunt Jane's reputation to be beige rather yes. than full of dramatic yes. incident. And the memoir they left us is the beigeest thing on earth. Exactly. It's just vanilla ridiculous. Um, but, yes, I mean, well, let's start with Cassandra's terrible reputation that she's got from burning the letters. And first things first, I would have to say that doing it would have been completely within Jane's wishes. Jane was a woman who chose to be published anonymously when she was alive. She didn't tell Miss Ben down the road when she was reading her Pride and Prejudice that she'd written Pride and Prejudice. This was not a woman who was going to sell her story to the Daily Mail, you know. That and, and the modern idea of fame where we own the person who gave us the work of art that we like and we want to know everything about them. I mean, that would just be so alien to these women. But also... And that, that would be desirable, that desirable, you would want that. ghastly. I mean, she didn't want people knowing who she was, yeah. let alone what she thought or who she'd fancied or mm. anything. You know, get knotted. And obviously the whole family agreed with that. They yes. all thought this is not something yes. we want anyone to know it should be hushed up they have the novels none of the rest of it is anybody's business Mm. and I think in the letters there would have been quite a lot of you know they knew each other inside out Jane and Cassandra there was all that um, disappointment when they first came out the collected edition that she wasn't discussing the political situation or the revolutions abroad or the rest of it or the rise event of evangelism why on earth she would do that with a woman she knew inside out and talked to 23 hours a day when she was with her. You know, she wouldn't. It was news and news and gossip and gossip. And what there would have been was a lot of bitching about other family members for a start. And Cassandra wouldn't have want people's feelings hurt. And um, Jane, as we know, could be quite catty. And uh, that wouldn't necessarily have reflected on her well either if she was sort of ripping apart her sisters-in-law and so on. So there was that. Um, And we know that those people were 
difficult characters in difficult their own right. So it's so likely that there yes. would have been absolutely annoyance and grudges and things coming out in these sort of. I think it's it's how you think about letters as well, isn't it? They weren't yes. formal epistles. No. They were chatty. Yeah. It was just them having a gossip. It was, it was a phone call. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It was a WhatsApp. Oh, yes. I mean, what? Uh, uh, clearly, people have always suspected there were secrets being hidden. And they think that these are great romances or whatever. I don't personally think that Jane ever got a whiff of romance. Um, there seems to be no evidence for it at all. But what I did think when I sat down and thought about it very deeply is that what obviously was missing from these letters were bouts of depression, which simply had to have hit. Because... I mean, there is no such thing as an utterly moodless genius. This this image that they try to create in, in the memoir of this person who was always smiling and always a joy to meet and always uncomplaining about everything and then sat down to write the most biting social satire of her age. You know, they don't quite marry those, mm. t- those two personality types with what we know of, of human psychology. And she had those years in the middle when she couldn't write. And that would have been a particular agony, a torture to her. And how that couldn't have had a psychological effect on her. It just must have done. And that's where the letters get patchy. That's where Jane and Cassandra are apart a lot. And it's where the letters get very, very patchy. And the tone of everything once they come to Chawton is very different. Light and more settled. You know, here is a person who is finding contentment at last. She's content when she's at Steventon. She's a slightly odd, scratchy creature in the few letters we've got from from the other years. And then um, she has contentment. So it was that that I felt was 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 being being obscured. But also on the characters thing, on all the many, many characters there are. What I love about the Austins is there are so many of them. There are all these brothers and sisters. All of these sisters-in-law are imported into the mix, producing these enormous families. And the endless dynamics and alliances and truces and wars between a family of that size. It's just fascinating. You don't need anything else. No, it's wonderful. And such different social ends. You know, you've got Edward with his terribly smart, well-bred wife and his grand life. And you've got James, who married second to Mary, who was not in any way his equal intellectually or socially and was chippy from the minute they got married. And then the Sailor Brothers bringing in people from quite different worlds and if we're thinking about how all of those people then became protective also became protective of Jane and her reputation and how it is interesting how Cassandra seems to have been lumbered with this reputation for being the sole person who took it upon herself to destroy the letters and actually it was so much more complicated than that. They were all in there, hiding letters, destroying them, keeping them secret. There's that wonderful quote from Fanny, um, Jane's, Jane and Cassandra's niece, when she's an old lady, where she writes 
to, is it one of her nieces, and she talks about how they, they weren't as she refined writes, when, as when, they should have been. She writes when she's writing the memoir. Yeah, Most absolutely. appalling so turncoat. So snooty and I awful know. She'd loved them. them when she was little. And then, then she was Lady Natchbull. Yeah. And just she became a very stuck-up old cow. It's quite heartbreaking, that. It is. When you think that, actually, when she was a little thing, they were... Yeah looking after her and spending yeah. so much time. And they were her favourite thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually there's a whole little bevy of those nieces who then, once they've grown up, they sort of control the reputation mm. of their aunts and they, they are a different period. You know, mm. they're moving into the Victorian period and they have different mm. ideas of what's socially acceptable, what they should be. Whereas actually, it's rather lovely. I think the Georgian period is actually so wonderfully sort of free and yes. they were really off they were able to do you know there were there were less constraints weren't there so actually the fact that the austins were living out here and mrs austin was working in the garden in her smock and all of those things that didn't mm. matter to the mm. georgians so much yes and as a child of course jane had had such intellectual freedom which she wouldn't have got as a victorian daughter yes but she exactly. had the run of the, library. of the library seems to have been reading quite <laughs> racy novels at a very tender age and clearly they did her a lot of good yeah. you know owned her narrative and presumably <laughs> Cassandra was too I mean yes. there's a lovely quote I think this is Mrs Austin writing in a letter to someone saying that they, the two girls were just you know glued at the hip and she mm. said that Jane absolutely worshipped Cassandra and if I think it was when she was talking about going to school yes. they said they actually thought that Jane was a little bit young to go to school but if Cassandra was going and she said if Cassandra was going to have her head cut off then Jane would have hers cut off too because she just wanted to do everything that her big sister did and this is why I wanted to write about Cassandra because Jane adored Cassandra Jane didn't suffer fools gladly Jane was quite a shrewd and often harsh judge of human nature and she thought Cassandra was the tops, okay? That's good enough for me. That's the character reference that any of us would quite like. Um, and all we have, we don't have any of Jane's le uh, Cassie's letters back to Jane. So she's this totally silent partner in these exchanges. I had to create the Cassandra that Jane was writing to, the person who Jane calls the greatest comic writer of our age when she's given her an account of a terrible evening. Or she says, I, I can't do anything without your direction. So it was a terrible mistake if I thought that I thought I was going to buy my bonnet on my own. Um, and then at the end, you know, and, and just love and affection. And, and then at the end, increasing dependence, emotional and physical. I was ill at the time of your going merely from the fact of your going, she says, towards the end. You know, that she'd had a relapse because Cassandra had, go, had, to, had to go off and look after another blooming relative. Um, so that is who Jane thought she was. And then you read the memoir and you read Caroline Austin saying, I did not dislike Aunt Cassandra, but if my visit should happen to fall when she was not there, I should not have noticed. And another nephew saying, I used to approach Chawton with a feeling of such joy, but once Aunt Jane was let, was gone, and it was the only Aunt Cassandra left behind, I felt the joy had left the cottage. You think, what a cheek. Mm. Jane didn't think that at all. So why are you remembering her like that? You're remembering her like that because you're reflecting in the light of Jane's fame, which isn't fair, 
people can be good people without being famous people. And also, Cassandra became an old woman, and Jane didn't become an old woman. So they never knew Jane, and if she would have been courted when she was 70, as, as we imagine she may well have been. Yeah. People can be. They didn't know that, they didn't have that memory. They had the memory of a young, young to early middle-aged woman who was then cut off in her prime who then they were talking and they were only talking about her because she was bringing fame to and renown to the Austin name. And for some reason, the two women have to be compared and contrasted. And somebody has to be the winner and somebody has to be the loser. Therefore, Cassandra has to be not as good as Jane in all ways. Whereas Jane thought Cassandra was better than her in all ways, apart from writing novels. And I really wanted to put her side of the story and stick up for her because she did so much for all of them, for a start. She birthed all their babies and she looked after them in the nursery. And whenever anybody was ill or dying, they sent for Cassandra and she went. And also, she nursed Jane to, left, to, to death. She protected Jane. She was the midwife to those novels. You know, she got her here and she ran the house so that Jane could just sit down and write. And we should be saying thank you, and they should have been saying thank you. But they weren't. Instead, they were doing this beauty pageant between them, which seems to me unnecessary and very unfair. It does. It's so often the way, though, isn't it? Yes, the, job, it is. the jobs that she was doing were the unglamorous ones. She was yes. taking care of the household and yes. making sure that Jane had space and yeah. time. And actually, it does feel, certainly in the novel, I feel like the two, those two characters, Jane is this sort of really quite difficult, temperamental, obviously a genius, but you know, that mm. normally does, as you're, as you're saying, it does come with a slightly more mm. difficult character perhaps, and that Cassandra is this very, I don't know, very able to sort of keep things on a calm, even keel, able to smooth over the difficult situations, able to be polite to everyone and keep things yes. going, and that isn't the kind of thing that people always think is the most exciting thing looking back yes no. I mean she was her manager you know like mm. Brian, Brian Epstein was for the Beatles mm. and um, these roles are really important the geniuses don't function without the people around them letting their letting their genius flourish you know we're not we're such a culture of celebrity and the great person and the great person is nothing without the other 10 to 20 <laughs> decent people mm. around them. And I think we need to, well, it's, it's the last line of Middlemarch, isn't it? It's these, these, these people in um, unwritten tombs, or nearly all of them women, who keep, who make the world go round, mm. who make stuff happen. Um, and our, our world is, is very much enhanced by the genius and, and, the, and the cultural treasure, but it's kept going by the decent dog's body. Yeah, just keep it behind mm. the scenes. I think that's another really interesting angle, isn't it, is that actually Jane wasn't famous anyway, no, and, and she exactly. wasn't successful, but yeah. Cassandra and her family had this huge Cassandra faith in her, faith. this belief. I think Cassandra had the most faith, you mm. know. I think the parents, well, I think, I think her, her father had great faith, but he was, he exited the scene quite early. And Henry had enormous faith, and Henry also was the very worldly brother and had the eye for the quick buck. 
Mm. He was the sort of PR man in the outfit. He may have been thinking about the novels yes. in a slightly different way. Yes. And also, he was the one who couldn't keep his trap shut about um, her identity and so on, because he was so proud. But Cassandra was the one who had pure faith in her talent, in who she was. And you need that person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and as a writer, I mean, you tell me, isn't yeah, it no. wonderful to have somebody there that you well, can would test it things be? on? Yeah, no, exactly. And... Absolutely, yes, yes. No, it, it really is. And, I mean, all her family, I think, were important from that point of view. But she clearly enormously revered, valued, treasured Cassandra's literary judgment. Mm. You know, everything was sent to her and, and okayed. And, and Mansfield Park was very much the product, I think, of a Cassandra point of view, and it, and it had a slight, had a mixed reception, still does really, but um, so, uh, so I think there was a lot of Cassandra in that novel. But that thing that they used to do of an evening of reading it in the circle, that's like screen testing a movie, and that I think explains why her narrative is so brilliantly paced, that she would have had the example of the evening, as a, they didn't laugh for five minutes, and you know, Mm. Were they fidgeting? Were they bored? Did they laugh? Yeah. Were they moved? I need to Did they cry up. at the end? Yeah. You know, she would have been able to revise the next morning on on the um, on the basis of the reaction of this incredibly intelligent audience. I mean, there were fine minds in the whole Austen family, and she was able to do that. Uh, so, just a fascinating resource, brilliant mm. resource for her to do it. I suppose that's the other thing, is that not only was her family incredibly well-read and intelligent, but they were all very creative and yes. fun people. Yes. Um, and Cassandra wasn't writing, although I think they all wrote a little bit, didn't they? But she was an artist, yes. and that she had her own outlet. So in, in some ways, she had her own reasons for understanding Jane's creativity. Mm. Um, and I think somebody's asked a question about that, about the portraits, about whether we know... Do you know if there are other... Um, artworks by Cassandra. We have one. Um, we have a, a, a little sketch upstairs that she did of Fanny, and then obviously there's there's the famous there's, there's, sketch yes. in the National Portrait Gallery. Yes, of the and who knows how like how much like her it is, but at least we know it's a sympathetic at, portrait. At we have something to imagine. Yeah. Yes, and there's there is a scene. I think there is some sort of. Um, Dawlish or something or other scene somewhere. Right. Um, but that's about it. I mean, I, I don't think her... I think her painting was something that she enjoyed enormously in her sketching. And, of course, she sketched the um, history of England yes, that Jane wrote when they were little. Jane wrote and, and Cassandra illustrated. So that's a very typical busy, clever little girl's thing to do is, oh, today let's write a book, you know, I'm going to write a history of England, oh, I'll do the pictures, you know. Um, and that's sweet. Yeah, that's, it's really lovely. That's very nice. But, no, I don't think it was taken particularly seriously, and I don't think she was a massive talent. I think it was a nice release for her. Heaven knows they needed it, um, as was needlework, mm. obviously. And, and they the, were both wonderful Yes, needlewomen. Um as we know from the quilt upstairs, their yes. stitching is so intricate and beautiful. Um, and that's a, something that you touch on in the novel. Yes, I, I came and listened to an excellent speech here about, about, that, um, about the making of that quilt and everything that, that the person who studied it has worked out. 
and that it was so big that they could they could never stretch it out in the house in, here in Chawton, that they would have had to have put it in the lawn when it was finished to see it. So she would have had to have had that pattern, which is 148 points of symmetry, as I remember it, in her mind's eye when she started it. And then I gather it was done at Cassandra's directive because it carried on after Mrs. Austin's, after Jane's death and after Mrs. Austin's death, it was Cassandra that finished it. They wouldn't have known what scraps they had, but they've managed symmetry and style of scraps. And it must have taken forever. And it is the most extraordinary piece, not just of fantastic sewing, but of mathematical precision of size and symmetry and, and then the artistry of it. It's amazing. They were clever, clever women. And you look at something like that and you think, you know, they didn't get to do the jobs that we do or, or, or do any of that, but God, yeah. they have brains. What they? could they have done if they'd been Such in today? clever yeah. women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Should we, get, should we look at the else? last one? Your relationship with the Austen sisters. How has it changed after writing the novel? How do you feel towards Jane and Cassandra now? Um, I think I'd started to make up my mind about things before I wrote it, which was why I wrote it. When I, I, I wrote a biography of Jane for the children's market, and I came across all of these obvious narratives that people write of Jane's life. The poor spinster who wrote about romance and never knew romance. And poor, lovely, lively Jane, who'd so longed for love and ended up with those three dreary ladies in a cottage in Hampshire. And I thought about those things long and hard. And I thought about who she would have married, actually who would have been available on the market to her, i.e. not Mr Darcy, let's go down the list a bit and actually get beneath Mr Collins here, um, somewhere down there. I don't think she was ever likely to marry. I don't think it was, the chances were one in a hundred. Also, marriage, excuse me, how great was it for women in Georgian times? You know, marrying for love, absolute, like playing the lottery. No, no guarantee that you would love your husband for more than a week. Um, you, you were married. Wouldn't know them very well. You were married to a man you often had not been in the same room with alone. You then, when you married them, after possibly just a few meetings, traditionally you went off to where he lived. If you didn't, it weren't like Emma in the novel and married somebody down the road, then you were going to go off and leave your family behind. She would have had to have said goodbye to her parents, goodbye to Cassandra. Her brothers were scattered and gone to. Lord knows where. I mean, the destabilisation of all of that for her. She would then have proceeded to have 9, 10, 11, 15, 102 children, which is what all her sisters-in-law did. And all the sisters-in-law, apart from Mary, who for some reason only had two, and Eliza, who was past really having kids by the time she married Henry, all of them died in childbirth on their multiple and left an orphan baby who was the 10th or the 11th or the 8th or something. What sort of a life is that? It's, you know, there is so much not to recommend it and so much to recommend if you've got a sister you love and a friend like Martha you love. And then the idea that you get a cottage with space and a garden 
in a village and you don't have to worry about the rent and you're living with the sister you think is absolutely marvellous, your best friend who nobody values at all because she's um, extremely plain and rather clumsy and overweight and large, but they value enormously because she's bright and good and everything they value, and their mother who keeps out of harm's way digging potatoes. That's a win if you're a Georgian woman of, you know, a clergyman's daughter. That's an absolute, that seems to me as good as it gets. They'd have had a hoot in here, I think, reading those novels aloud every night as they're in that drawing room as they were being written. No man stomping about, no man wondering where his dinner was, no man sort of giving discourse on his views on things. They, that was the closest thing to freedom, that people, that women with money could, could actually um, experience, without money, could actually experience. So I think um, that was a stroke of luck. So I wanted to upend those, those two things. And then I sort of bought into the Cassandra was the lesser person. And then the more I worked on it, the more I thought that was unfair. And I really wanted to um, big her up. And then when I was reading, I was in the sort of back channels of research, and it must have been, I think, a memoir, some sort of memory of, um, of the Knight family, lower, sort of low, you know, in the, the next generation, not Edward, or all of his children. And long after Jane had died, and Mrs. Um, Austin had died, and Martha had married, Cassandra was living here alone, and one of Edward's daughters, this gets complicated, okay, I hope you're all less experts, whoever's listening, Fanny was the eldest knight daughter, she married um, Edward Natural who already had six children of his own, and she went on to have another, load more, she became very grand and very snobby. The, the younger daughters rather got forgotten about. They um, had no mother by that point and nothing was done much about the match. One of the youngest ones fell in love with one of Fanny's, her own sister's stepsons. And it was a proper love match. It was a, you know, cutifuge. Ooh, we love each other. They went to their parents and said, you know, we want to get married. And there was uproar, mostly led by snobby Fanny and uproar and it was completely refused and they weren't blood relatives you know they were related by marriage is all which wasn't an unusual thing then and they were both young and they were both single and they were both from good families there was no reason to object except that fanny felt it unseemly because she was a victorian snob by that point and there was great misery and um wringing of handkerchiefs and then they ran off to gretna green and got married and there was they, the whole family went completely nuts and they were cut off and nobody would give them safe harbour. And guess where they came? They came here to Chawton. Cassandra took them in on her own. She took them in and they spent their first six weeks of married life here. And she said, you stay here and until it all, it'll blow over. I've seen this before. It'll blow over. It'll sort. And she looked after them. Is that a stuffy, grumpy, old, dry woman who does that? No, it's a really nice, really nice, good person. An old romantic, nearly in her 70s. And, you know, it was just time to give her her due, I felt.
and we are back now lauren i think it's a beautiful christmas gift that you've given our listeners by actually finding people with proper decent british accents for them to listen to for a week oh really i mean mine isn't good enough for you guys oh no yours is trash (laughs) (laughs) thanks for clearing that up yours is really bad yeah (laughs) i've been told i sound like a dickensian orphan is that not a compliment uh or true oh (laughs) (laughs) who told you that (laughs) several people british people Uh, unclear don't read the comments on the internet i guess guys right (laughs) so what i did really like about this discussion was the fact that we always consider how the family really shaped our image of Jane austen but like Mm. i certainly haven't really thought about how much they did the same for cassandra or how much by focusing so much on Jane, which I get, like, you do focus on the famous people. It's not just, like, you preserve what you think is important, right? And there are a thousand million other spinsters like Cassandra all over the country that Mm -hmm. haven't, you know, that aren't writing books. Like, I do get it, but it's just a shame when you've got these two sisters and you've got one that's just, like, completely brushed aside by history. But really, if it wasn't for Jane Austen, we wouldn't be talking about Cassandra Austen at all. So, you know, know, I'm sorry. But it did make me think about it, which is the thing that, you know, I don't spend any time doing. Uh, With that in mind, I think I'm going to have to leave you with some very strict instructions on how I want my memory to be preserved. Mm, Same. Also, how I want my brother's memories to be preserved. So I just, if everyone could just note this down, that Christopher, my eldest brother, once stole 54 pence worth of two peas from me. And then he Mm. bought a Mars bar. And he ate it. He didn't share it with me. And he should be remembered as a scoundrel and a crook and a charlatan. Wow. Yep. I was like six or seven. So if we could just, that's. I'm so glad that I am also now in charge of their legacies as well. Yeah, not just mine. But Such power. Yeah, my five brothers as well. Thank you. The first thing I will do is, I mean, you know, I will write to Facebook and I will see how I can destroy our Facebook. Oh, yes. Private messages. Mm-hmm. I don't know how if that's the possible. Is, I don't know if the government owns that now. But when you say that, I think it tempts people to try and oh, yeah. like Elizabeth Gaskell's letters when she's like, oh, destroy this. You, you, you don't, you're not going to destroy a letter that tells you to do it. So now... Those letters, those letters, in bold, those letters. Um, we received, I would say, at least a dozen questions about them. And what, what, I, what I found really interesting was that they ranged from, like, people being furious that Cassandra had destroyed the letters and accused her of greed and anger and even jealousy to people that felt like Cassandra was really, like, overprotecting Jane. So it was, like, this whole, like crazy spectrum and I definitely fall on sort of the protection end of that spectrum oh yeah for sure yeah definitely and maybe not just Jane too but like herself as well right and her family but um I was reminded of that of that thing that Cassandra said about Jane after Jane died which was she was the son of my life the gilder of every pleasure, the soother of every sorrow. I had not a thought concealed from her, and it is as if I had lost a part of myself. That whole, I had not a thought concealed from her. 
Yeah, they taught I mean, each other everything. Everything. I used to choke up when I read that. I used to. It was really sad. It was so embarrassing. I'd be like. <laughs> <laughs> I will read that at your funeral. And that is why I have to destroy our Facebook messages. Okay, thank you, Keith. I've pulled a few of the sort of snarky comments from the letters. And we know these are the edited snarky comments, right? Yeah, these are the ones that like, they made the cut. These are like the yeah. palatable snark. You wanna wanna read one of these lines from uh, Jane to Cassandra? Yeah, okay. So in a letter to Cassandra sent on January 8th, 1799, Jane Austen said, I am tolerably glad to hear that Edward's income is so good a one, as glad as I can be at anybody's being rich besides you and me. <laughs> that's delightful. That's Yeah, that's not that snarky. No, it's not, but it's it's funny. It's pointed. Yeah. This is one of my favorite Jane lines. I would love it if um, someone in the Bad Craft Society would like stitch it on a pillow for me. Just putting that out there. You know, Christmas is around the corner. So it says, I do not want people to be very agreeable as it saves me the trouble of liking them a great deal. Yeah, I like that one. I agree. Yeah. Jane Austen didn't have time for fake friends, guys. No. Mm -mm. She wasn't about that lifestyle. Also, she didn't have any time for fuckboys either because there's another quote and it says, a handsome young man, certainly with quiet gentleman-like manners. I set him down as sensible rather than brilliant. There is nobody brilliant nowadays. So like, he's fine. Solid fine out of 10. He's fine. Middling sad lad. All right. Another letter to Cassandra. Another stupid party last night. Perhaps if larger, they might be less intolerable, but here there were only just enough to make one card table with six people to look over and talk nonsense to each other. Dumb parties. <laughs> she wasn't drunk enough. No, she wasn't. She Definitely not enough wine. That's the, you know. There was no one brilliant there, clearly. There was no one brilliant. She didn't like anybody. They weren't, they, they were all too agreeable. I like this one as well because she's just like oh I do not like the Miss Blackstones indeed I was always determined not to like them so there is merit in it (laughs) which yeah yeah that's something we'd say I don't like you and there's nothing you can do about it (laughs) regards to your mother goodbye (laughs) all right Hannah our season is almost over we oh, have okay. just one more episode, I promise. I swear, it's happening. And um, this one is for all you Bronte fans out there clinging on in the deluge of just crazy Austin content that we've had the past few weeks. Um, so this sorry. is This is your lifeline. No, I'm not yeah. sorry. <laughs> all right, guys, we are going to be watching Jane Eyre and we are going to be watching Jane Eyre. Yeah, we're watching both versions. We're going to watch the BBC one with Ruth Wilson from like whatever, 10 years, I think, or so. 10, 11 yeah. years? It's I getting old. A while ago, yeah. One of those mm-hmm. things where you look it up and you're like, oh shit, that's ages ago. Uh, and then the <laughs> other one, which is the new one, and it's got that robot man from Prometheus. <laughs> right. Great call. He smokes a lot. Yes. Um, and you I know about one, him. But... Yeah, I know. Do you know his name? He, um, I did know it because mm-hmm, I said it mm-hmm. in the last episode. Right. He's a famous actor. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say Rupert Murdoch. But that's not... His name is Rupert Murdoch, guys. <laughs> right. uh, that's no. not right. It's, um, no, it's Gecko. Not. I can't. It's not Gecko. 
Just, this is my favorite game. Just asking Hannah to name an actor. One of the Matthews. He's on the wine show. One of the Matthews Just on kidding. the wine show. I know okay. All right. One more. One more go. Michael, name Michael an actor. Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. Did you look that up? No, I said Matthew, and then I was like, oh, no. <laughs> we got there. It sounds like Matthew, honestly. Matthew it, Fassbender. It, Matthew Fassbender. Mm-hmm. There you go. Look it up, guys. It's a true story. Um, we are going to be watching those two films because... Actually, One of them is actually a TV series, Lauren. It's yeah, like true. you don't know or remember anything. So, <laughs> honestly, you're, te- you're terrible. <laughs> We'll be watching those two Janes um, because there is so much content. One is a movie, one is a TV series. We will not be doing a watch along. So instead, we'll go ahead and post threads in our Facebook group. And um, you guys can tell us what you think. And we will, of course, read out your thoughts on the show. I'm very interested to see what people think the differences are between them before they rewatch them. So just like from memory, mm-hmm. what do you mm-hmm. think the differences are between these adaptations and also the book? Well, I mean, one stars Rupert Murdoch, so yeah. <laughs> and the robot, so. And the robot, so. The robot. Yeah, that's my favorite one. You can find us online on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us bonnets at dawn at gmail.com and you can find us on Facebook by searching Bonnets at Dawn and just proving you're not a robot by answering those real real easy questions. Just Yeah, they're really easy. Real easy. It's not a pop quiz. It's just like, no. hey, you human, you listen to this show. Great. Thank you.